open your Bibles with me to John chapter 6 again. We've got this week and next week, and we'll finish John chapter 6. <clears throat> John chapter 6, we'll start in verse 48, and you can also find that on page 892 of the Pew Bible. And just out of respect for time again today, with the baptism, I'll ask you to remain seated while I read the Word of God. So chapter 6, verse 48 of John's Gospel, hear the Word of the Lord. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever." Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I give you thanks for this word, and I pray that you would encourage our hearts with it this morning, that you would convict us of sin, and that you would drive us away from sin by satisfying us all the more with Christ. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and give illumination to the soul where that is needed and understanding to the mind where that is needed. I pray that you would humble the proud and raise up the downcast, that you would save the lost, that all of us would be one to you again by the word of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the second week in a row that, John ha uh, that Jesus has identified himself as the bread of life. And we saw that uh, the first time back in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And now we see him do it again in verse 48. Simply, I am the bread of life. Jesus takes on many names 
in the Gospel of John. For example, this is just, just to this point. John has identified Jesus as the Word made flesh, the true light, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Son of Man, the Bridegroom, and the Savior of the world. And John will have even more names attributed to Jesus later on, like the Good Shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and the true vine. And even those names really only scratch the surface of seeing all that Jesus really is. We could also include the various Old Testament themes John says Jesus fulfills, such as the Passover, or the tabernacle, or the temple, or the new age of the spirit, or the inbreaking of God's kingdom, or the suffering servant who dies in place of his people, or the true worship that extends to Jew and Gentile alike, or the Sabbath rest from sickness and sin, or the new creation where God himself will dwell with man. All of these themes find their goal and their fulfillment in Jesus. And John brings them up together with these names, putting these things together, to reveal Jesus' person and his mission. He's spelling out for us, he's using the Old Testament scriptures to spell out for us who Jesus is and why Jesus came. And so when we encounter a name like the bread of life, we need to remember that such a name is meant to reveal another piece in the portrait John is painting of Jesus' person and work. And he's using the Old Testament scriptures to do it. In this case, Jesus is the bread of life. That's who he is. That's his person. And the rest of Jesus' words reveal exactly why he came as the bread of life. They spell out something particular he accomplishes in his mission to save us. Jesus has already set some of the landscape for us this morning. His reference in verse 49 there where he says, Your fathers, that takes us all the way back to verse 31 in his discussion with the Jews. You can turn with me there to verse 31 where the Jews themselves, they are, they are skeptical of Jesus. They want Jesus to prove himself with another sign. And so they tell him, our fathers, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They don't believe Jesus is offering them anything superior to heavenly manna. I mean, after all, manna was heavenly food. It wasn't something they produced on their own. It was a miraculous food that came with the morning dew and dissolved with the sun, Exodus 16 tells us. It wasn't even something that was uh, at their disposal. If they kept it more than a day, except for the Sabbath, the Lord caused it to rot and grow worms. Jesus gave them enough bread to feed 5,000, but could he feed all of Israel with something greater than what their fathers ate in the wilderness? Well, Jesus' answer throughout this passage is a resounding yes. Part of his answer came in verse 32. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, and for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, yes, 
It's way better than manna in the wilderness because the bread I'm talking about gives life not just to 5,000, not just to the nation of Israel, but to the entire world. It's a bread that feeds conservative Jews and liberal Gentiles. It's for classy businessmen and for poor prostitutes. It's for self-righteous churchgoers and for lawless street people. Its life-giving ability has no ethnic, no social, no political, no economic, no familial, no religious boundaries. It gives life to whoever feeds on it. Another part of his answer began in verse 35. We saw some of that last week where Jesus identifies himself the first time as the bread of life and then explains the effects of feeding the world with his bread. He says, I am the bread of life, in verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So if any sinner, people like you and me, if any of us come to Jesus and believe in Jesus, the effect of that relationship will be that we no longer hunger and that we no longer thirst. Our spirit will not starve. Our soul will not shrivel up from lack of true life with God, which we've suffered since the fall. We'll actually experience an abundance of life in a relationship with God when we approach him through his son. So that's another part of Jesus' answer. Jesus' bread is superior to the manna because it's, because it's for the whole world and it's effective to satisfy our souls completely in a life with God. And that's true for everybody the Father gives to the Son. Now, in verses 49 to 51, Jesus gives them yet another taste of his superior bread. Jesus' bread actually has the power to keep people alive forever. Verse 49. Your fathers, so contrasting what they started with, our fathers, back in verse 31, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And in case they missed it, towards the end of the discussion, Jesus says it again in verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So that's yet another way Jesus' bread is superior to the manna. When you partake of it, it has the power to keep you alive forever. His point to them is that if manna is the only bread you eat, you're going to perish like your fathers. Jesus is directing them again to the superior bread he provides, and which that bread always pointed, the bread in the wilderness always pointed to. If the last two points Jesus made about the superiority of his bread, didn't grab you, this one should. 
because we're all going to die. We're all going to die because we're all sinners. Romans 5 tells us, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We're all going to die because we're all a bunch of sinners. Death threatens all of us because all of us sin. All of us have rebelled against God and the consequence is death. Physical death that brings our bodies to the grave and spiritual death that separates us from a life with God. So I don't know about you, but when I hear Jesus saying, I have bread that will make you live forever, he's got my attention. He's got bread to solve my problem. And here he tells me that if anyone eats of this bread, the bread Jesus gives, he will live forever. Now the obvious question is, well then where is it? Where shall I look to find such bread? What does it look like, Jesus? And he tells us at the end of verse 51, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You can see why the Jews responded the way they did. Disputing amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? But again, as we've seen throughout this passage and the entire gospel, misunderstanding Jesus' words, even being put off by them, like they are here, isn't merely an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. The Jews don't understand Jesus because the Jews don't believe Jesus. What have they done the last two times Jesus has attempted to teach them what he's talking about. If you look with me in verses 41 to 42, verse 41 says that the Jews grumbled about him. So how many verses into this discussion has he been explaining to them what exactly he's been talking about, what exactly the bread's been pointing them to, and here they are grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And then verse 52, we see it again. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They think they know better than the one who's come down from the bosom of his father in heaven. They don't go to him for answers. They talk amongst themselves for answers. They think they know better how does he now say? How can this man give? They're not confused because they're not smart. They're confused because they're spiritually blind. It's even their own Passover celebration. We saw that chapter 6, verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. This is a time to observe God's gracious deliverance of Israel 
through the sacrificial lamb. Remember the lamb in the Exodus deliverance? Exodus 12 tells us that God chose to deliver his people from captivity through the blood of an unblemished lamb. Each household was to take an unblemished lamb, sacrifice that lamb, smear the lamb's blood on the doorposts of their home. And if you stood under the protection of the Passover blood, the Passover lamb's blood inside the home, then the Lord would spare you of his judgment. He would rescue your entire household from death. The Jew, these Jews talking to Jesus were gathered for an annual feast, the annual feast of the Passover to remember God's special deliverance through the Passover lamb. And you know what that feast included? That feast, Exodus 12 tells us that it included eating the flesh of the Passover lamb. Eating it with readiness, waiting for God to send his final deliverance. Numbers chapter 9, verse 13, even says that when you did not participate in the feast of the Passover, so you're not eating the flesh of the lamb, it meant that you would remain in your sins. So the whole point of the feast with these Jews, the whole point of this, of this feast as they're celebrating it year after year after year, what they're supposed to be celebrating here, the whole point of that feast was to teach them no blood, no lamb meant no blood. No blood would mean no forgiveness of sins. No forgiveness of sins would mean no deliverance from death. And here comes Jesus at Passover in their own synagogue telling them, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He's trying to get them to see that the way he's the bread of life is that he comes down from heaven to be sacrificed as the Passover lamb. He's kind of over, he's using two metaphors, uh, two, two Old Testament images to talk about the same thing. He does the same thing later, he does the same thing throughout the Gospel of John. But you think maybe a common one that you know, he's, all, he's the door of the sheep, he's the gate, and he's the shepherd. Which one is he? And John's saying both. And same thing here. He's, he's the bread from heaven and he's the Passover lamb and they both help understand each other. He's got to come down from heaven. He's got to die like a lamb. They both are talking about Jesus and explaining his mission for us. So the way his bread gives life is that it comes down from heaven and then the Son of Man gives himself gives his flesh for the life of the world. That's how the bread he offers, which he just called his flesh, gives life. Just like the Passover lamb in the Exodus, Jesus is slaughtered. Jesus' flesh is torn. Jesus' blood is spilled to deliver us from death. A death that continues to haunt us 
because of our sin. If you need more help making this connection with the Passover lamb, think of the two bookends in, uh, in Jesus' earthly ministry and John's gospel. John has two bookends. John the Baptist saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in chapter 1, verse 29, and the cross where the soldiers don't break Jesus' bones. And John says this happened in order to fulfill the Scriptures. And he points them all the way back to Numbers, talking about not breaking the bones of the Passover Lamb. Those are the two bookends. So everything between the two bookends is developing that theme of Jesus being our Passover lamb, including here in chapter 6, where he's talking about the bread of life. And the way he gives life is that he is slaughtered like the Passover lamb. John eventually saw with the eyes of faith what the Jews in this text are not seeing. Notice also that Jesus gives his flesh for the life of the world. The last time the word flesh applied to Jesus in this gospel was when John told us that the eternal word of God became flesh. Chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God's Son took on our humanity. Well, what chapter 6, verse 51 is clarifying is that the whole point of the Word of God becoming flesh was to give it up. That is to say, the Son of God came to give Himself up to death. He took on flesh to make Himself killable, murderable, and then deliver His, body, his physical body over to the hands of evil men on a cross. And he did so not merely for the purpose of setting a good example, though that's included, but for the expressed purpose of giving life to the world. The bread I will give is my flesh, he says, and he will do this for the life of the world. The clear implication is that the world is already dead and in need of life. As I mentioned before from Romans 5, we suffer not merely from physical death, but our physical death points to the much deeper problem. Namely, we are spiritually dead before God. We die because we are sinners separated from God. Ephesians 2 says that without God acting favorably towards us in Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. This is why throughout John's gospel, the world is characterized by darkness. The only light in the world is Jesus Christ himself when he comes. Everything else is darkness. The world of humanity also sits under God's wrath. John 3, 36, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Wrath isn't just waiting for him on the last day. It's already on him on the person that's not believing in Jesus. Eternal death under God's judgment looms over his life already. This is the natural state of the world. This is how the world is on its own. This is how we were without Christ as our help. We were spiritually dead 
and have no hope for any good life beyond the grave, but only the experience of torturous wrath. To put it negatively, you are without life on your own. With no relationship to Jesus happening, you are a walking dead man. But in verses 51 and 53, Jesus states this is why he came down from heaven. To give his flesh in a way that would deliver you from that death. And that way is pictured for us well in Jesus dying as our Passover lamb. That might sound strange to say that through his death, we're delivered from our death. But that's precisely what makes the message of the cross such good news to tell you and to tell others. Jesus' death on the cross, the place where he gave up his flesh, delivers us from death because his blood takes away our sins. As long as sin keeps us separated from God, death remains a threat. Death stings us. It keeps stinging us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It keeps dealing its poisonous blow again and again and again. When sin remains, death only prepares us for more death in the lake of fire. But if somehow sin is removed, if our transgressions against God's law are forgiven in total, then death has lost its power altogether. In fact, with sins taken away, our physical death can only prepare the believer for eternal glory, not eternal destruction. That's what God achieves when Jesus gives up his flesh for you as the Passover lamb. He identified with you in your flesh because it is in your flesh that the rebellion occurred. He had to become a man because, and, become, and take on flesh because you sinned in your flesh. He identified with your flesh because that is the state in which you rebelled. And innocent though he was in his flesh, Jesus still offered himself up in our place like an unblemished lamb that you might be forgiven of all your sins, that God's wrath would be absorbed in his flesh instead of yours, and that his blood would settle your deliverance from death forever. But as he says repeatedly throughout our passage, these blessings, forgiveness, wrath settled, deliverance from death, they're only true for the one who eats Jesus' flesh and drinks Jesus' blood. In the same way was the case with the Passover in, 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 the, in the Exodus. You don't participate in the feast, you're not saved. Verse 50 says, so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, if, uh, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of, Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. Verse 57, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And lastly, verse 58, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
Now, there's no need to read anything more into those statements than what the context clearly suggests. Some of our Catholic neighbors and others have suggested that the eating and drinking in these verses must refer to the sacramental participation in the Eucharist. That means some people think that in order for us to have eternal life, eternal life must be infused continually to us through our ongoing participation in the Eucharist, what some call the Mass. But several things in the context stand against that understanding. For example, the entirety of chapter 6 is dealing with unbelief and belief. The entirety of it. The only place where Jesus breaks off from dealing with belief and unbelief is in, chapter, in verses 51 to 58 where he doesn't mention it anymore. The only thing he mentions is eating and drinking. The point being, eating and drinking is believing. Not to be understood in its literal sense, but in a symbolic sense. Another example is that verse 35 has already prepared us for how we should understand eating and drinking. Read it again with me. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So that's like the not hungering is like the negative way of saying eating. And never thirsting is like... the Negative way of saying, drinking. So, eating so that you don't hunger and drinking so that you never thirst parallels coming and believing. So, to come to Jesus is to eat of Jesus and to believe in Jesus is to drink of Jesus. On top of that, the whole point of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood is part and parcel to his identity as the true Passover lamb. What I mean is that John's in, in John's gospel, the language of faith always hinges on the identity of Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. Let's take a few examples. Whenever Christ is identified as the glory of God... Seeing is believing. You see the glory of God. Seeing is believing. Whenever Christ is identified as God's superior revealer and teacher and prophet, hearing and learning is believing. You hear Jesus' words, you hear them rightly, like John is talking about, you're believing. Whenever Christ is identified as God himself, honoring is believing. Whenever he's the true vine, abiding in the vine is believing. When he's the good shepherd, hearing his voice and following is believing. When he's referred to as the Jewish Messiah who's come to his own people, receiving him and welcoming him is believing. 
When he's the light of the world, coming to the light is believing. He's the living water, drinking is believing. He's the curse bearer that's lifted up on the cross, looking upon him is believing. And on and on we could go with John's gospel. The point is that if Jesus is revealing himself not only as the bread of life, and that that life is tied to what he achieves as the true Passover or lamb, both of which you eat, then it only makes sense that the language for believing would be eating his flesh and drinking his blood. The point is that, the whole point is that whenever you are banking on Jesus' sacrificial death to deliver you from sin and death, you will gain etern the eternal life Jesus is speaking of. If belief is lacking, as it is in these Jews, you will only experience death the rest of your life and in the age to come, eternal death and hell. But if you believe, if you eat and drink, in other words, if you cast yourself wholly upon Jesus as your only hope from, for deliverance from death, then you will have eternal life in full, not in part, such that you have to keep coming to a ceremony, performing another ritual for more and more and more and more of the eternal life. You gain it all at once when you're united to Jesus and sim by simply trusting him. And that eternal life, which you gain through Jesus' sacrificial death, includes at least two things in our passage that we haven't talked about yet. Resurrection life in the future and spiritual communion with Christ in the present. So let's look at the first, resurrection life in the future, in verse 54. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So part of this eternal life is tied to and I will raise him up on the last day. That means that when you're united to Christ's death, when you share in his flesh and blood deliverance, your life is secure until the resurrection of the just. Jesus gives you, in this passage, he gives you the blood-bought promise to raise you up on the last day when you come to him and we know we can take it to the bank because God has already raised Jesus from the dead as the first fruits of our resurrection. In other words, the resurrection's already begun. It began when Jesus came out of the grave on the third day. The rest is yet to come. Now let's be clear, Jesus will raise everybody from the dead, whether you believe in Christ or not. John 5 Back in chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, they say that an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man and those who are in the tombs will rise, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, but those who have done good to the resurrection of life. The point Jesus is making here is that when you're united to Christ's death through faith, you will participate in the resurrection of life. 
You won't be raised to be condemned because there's no condemnation remaining for those who are eating and drinking from Jesus. That condemnation was all absorbed in Christ's suffering on the cross. You will be raised to reign with Christ in his kingdom. Revelation 20 verse 6 speaks of this like this. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. That's a great promise to preach to yourself when the fear of dying creeps into your soul. Perhaps as you're persecuted for your faith, or as you attend the funeral of a loved one, or as you experience an illness shutting down your insides, or as you're wrestling against the fear of man and sharing the gospel with your neighbors, if we truly belong to Christ, we don't have to fear death. Jesus' promise of resurrection sets all my confidence in the power of God so that my strength in whatever I'm doing, you name it, whatever, in whatever you're doing for Christ, not just what we call ministry things here at the church or in your care group, but when you go into work at Lockheed in the morning for Christ, making ethical decisions for Christ, everything that you're doing comes, all of that strength to do that comes not from within you, but from the God who raises the dead. Jesus said the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. It means we stand on the victory of Jesus Christ and threats from the grave cannot stop us in our preaching and ministry efforts. Jesus' promise grants us such assurance for eternal life that our Savior's ultimate victory over death and our Savior's ultimate victory over death on the last day that we are also freed. We are freed to lay down our lives for the sake of the nations knowing Jesus. So let me encourage you not to grow faint-hearted in your work in whatever context that work is occurring whether you're at home with children or at the workplace or going on a mission trip we're moving to China, Bobby and Vanessa, in a couple of weeks. Let me encourage you to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain. Jesus partook of flesh and blood, the writer of Hebrews says, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear of death paralyzes you. But Christ came to defeat death and let us run. For his namesake. If God is for us, who can be against us? So that's the first thing we gain through Jesus' sacrificial death, resurrection life in the future. That's part of our eternal life. 
The second thing we gain through Jesus' sacrificial death is spiritual communion with Christ in the present. So the eternal life, oftentimes when we talk about eternal life, especially if a lot of us grew up with a different translation of Scripture that interpreted, that translated eternal life as everlasting life, seems to just place it all in the future, after the resurrection, something uh, that's merely restricted to the duration of the time. And John has a much uh, uh, broader... There's, there's more things included in eternal life than just duration of how long we're going to live. It's not merely about a future expectation, but also a present reality, a present blessing that we experience. So look with me at verses 56 to 57. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. A couple of things are coming together there. The self-existent life of the Godhead we see the Father is the living Father, and the Son lives because of the Father, which doesn't mean the Son's life had a beginning. It just means that he, He's granted that life from the Father eternally. Amazing. So you have the self-existent life of the Father, and the Son then comes into the believer. All that life comes into the believer by virtue of the believer's union with Christ. So you have the living Father giving life to the Son eternally. And when we eat and feast on Jesus' sacrificial death, that comes in here, into our hearts. It fills our souls. There's a book titled, I can't remember the guy's name, but it's called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. It's written, it's written strictly on that subject. Good title. But this is what's going on here. The self-existent life of the Father and the Son then comes into the believer by virtue of the believer's union with Christ. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That means part of gaining eternal life is having the living Christ in you as you relate to him. And the question is, how does that happen? Well, John shows us later that it happens through the Holy Spirit. That's why I've called it spiritual communion with Christ. Not to be esoteric and mysterious, but because our communion with Christ is made possible only by the Spirit. Our communion with Christ is spiritual in that it is caused and sustained by the Spirit. I get this from John chapter 14. You can go there with me. This is part of what Jesus came to buy for you under the new covenant. John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you... So this is speaking of... After Jesus, he's, Jesus is speaking in advance that he's going to rise from the dead. He's going to send, ascend into heaven to his Father. That's where he is right now. 
And when that happens, this is what he says, you know, if you keep my commandments and I will ask of the Father and he will give you another helper. So he's going to send the Spirit uh, to be there with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him. Here's how. For he dwells with you and will be in you. And then look at verse 20. In that day, when that happens, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Just like he said in chapter 6, verse 56. You in me and I in you. Sounds a lot like abiding in me and I in him that we saw in chapter 6. So whenever Jesus is speaking of us abiding in Christ and Christ being in us to give us life, what he's referring to is life in the Spirit. To put it another way, the life of Jesus Christ is personally present in the believer by the Spirit. It's nothing short of what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 9 to 10. I want you to see this, so go there with me. John, Acts, Romans. Just two books over, Romans chapter 8. Look at verse, verses 9 and 10. So you have people, just so you know, that, that are in the flesh, and when you're in the flesh, you can't please God. And so he goes on in verse 9 and says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and uh, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Notice what he did there. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ... does not belong to Christ. So you have the Spirit of Christ in you. And he said it's just as much, it's just as the same as saying Christ is in you. So Christ is in you by the Spirit. Spirit of Christ, Christ is in you are the same exact things in Romans 8 as well. Same thing we're seeing in John's Gospel. So what does that life look like from day to day? I mean, this is part of our eternal life. If we believe in Jesus, we're supposed to have it every day of our life. When we wake up, it's there. What does this life look like from day to day? A few things I'll mention. For starters, it means that Christ is with the believer such that we never need to worry about being forsaken by God. He's so much with the believer and in the believer, we never need to worry about being forsaken by God. Difficult times and circumstances will come in our lives. Jesus says also in chapter 14, in this world you will have trouble. That's guaranteed. You've got trouble in the world. Even severe temptations from the enemy. And it will be the temptation of our flesh to start believing and to start preaching to ourselves 
a false gospel in those moments. That false gospel being, God is far away from me. God is far away from me. God is not near to me. God is not hearing me. There are even times that we will sin and we will think this or that particular sin has made us castaways from the Lord. But Jesus' promise to be in the person who feeds on him tells us differently. This promise reminds us that God is never far from desperate beggars who come to him for life, who come to him for true food and true drink. The whole point of feasting on his flesh and drinking his blood is to remember that it was Christ who drew near to us in the first place, despite all of our sins. When you come to him, banking on his death to accomplish for you what you cannot accomplish for yourselves, Jesus says he will be in you. By his spirit, he will be in you and not in you to leave you as an orphan, but in you so that you might have fellowship with God in all of those things, in all of the trouble. Something else we might consider is that whenever Christ abides in us by the Spirit, He will not let us keep living according to our own desires. The whole point of the Passover lamb was not only deliverance from death, but it provided a decisive break with Israel's slavery in Egypt. Christ's death does the same thing between us and our sin. His death provides the decisive break with the power of sin. And if he dwells in us, we now have the ability and the grace to fight sin and to overcome its temptations and to cry out to God when we are weak. Just like Paul puts it in Romans 8, a little bit further down than what we read a minute ago, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body... The Spirit of Christ in you, if by that Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You're in sin. You cry, Abba, Father, deliver me from this sin. That's the nature of, our, of the Spirit working inside of us. Just think, the fight against sin is now possible for us if you eat and drink from the Son of Man. At one time, sin was savory to you. You didn't have a clue what it tasted like. But now our feasting on Christ himself has changed your spiritual taste buds, so to speak, so that sin has grown sour and dissatisfying. If you're a Christian, give thanks to God this morning for making sin sour to your soul and ask him to fill you with more of Christ. This is how Paul dealt with the Corinthians. You remember in chapter 5 where you have all the uh, arrogant, 
believers and they're doing all kinds of stuff. And Paul, Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 5 uh, that, that their boasting is not good. The, the evil that they're committing is, is not good. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And the whole point of him exhorting them to, to cleanse themselves from the sin is because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And they're not losing anything when they give up the evil. They're only gaining celebration. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There's a, there's a celebration going on on the other side. You're not losing anything when you forsake sin. You're gaining everything in Christ and what he is, the celebration of heaven itself. So ask God to fill you with more of Christ that you might run to him. One more thing to consider. If Christ is in us, we will learn that to live truly part of this eternal life now, in this life, to live truly in this life is to humble ourselves for the eternal good of others. To live truly is to humble ourselves for the eternal good of others. Notice in verse 53, I woke up at 1235, 1240 to, uh, or 1245, 1250 to write this one down. It just popped into my head. Uh, notice in verse 53 that we are feeding on the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of Man. That comes from Daniel 7, 14. Go there with me. Daniel 7, 14, right after Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel 7, 14. I'll start in verse 13. Daniel says... I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. How amazing is it that, the, that this Son of Man, the picture that we get here in Daniel 7, this Son of Man came down from heaven like manna in order to give his life as a lamb. That's how he wins the people's and the nations and the languages. He lays down his life for their eternal good. And if that Son of Man, upon which we're feasting, is living inside of us by the Spirit, how much then should we look like him? If he's living inside here, how much then should we look like him? True life is not found in climbing to the top of the corporate ladder or in striving to have the most popular ministries in town. 
but in identifying with Jesus in laying our lives down for others. Just like the Son of Man. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would work uh, these words into, this, uh, into us as a people, that you would give us much joy in the coming days of eating and drinking of the Son of Man, that you would fill us with him such that we begin looking like him through and through as husbands and fathers and mothers and children and as a community. I pray that we would continue running to Jesus until the day he raises us from the dead. And I ask this in his name. Amen.